Good evening, everybody, and welcome to School Psych Podcast. Uh, tonight, we've got a really interesting presentation on disproportionality. I want to remind everyone that we have our resources drive posted, um, and I'll post a link in the chat box in a little bit um, that has a link to the presentation that we're going to be uh, watching tonight. So I would encourage everyone to check that out and, and follow along um, if, if that helps you out. Um, but my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist. I'm working in the state of Maryland. Rebecca? Hi, I'm Rebecca, and I'm a school psychologist working in the great state of Connecticut. I want to tell you guys how to participate. Um, most of our participation lately has been right alongside the YouTube live video. There's a chat box there, and you can comment. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, your questions, thoughts, experiences, but also on Twitter using the hashtag psychedpodcast. I'll be looking for notifications there. And on Facebook, on both Facebook pages, School Psyched, Your School Psychologist, just feel free to comment anywhere in messages or under the top post, which is about our podcast, or on the School Psych Podcast page. I'll be looking for you. We can't wait to chat with you. And here's Anna. Hi, I'm Anna. I'm a school psych working in New York State. I am very excited to introduce our guest to you, um, Paul L. Morgan. Um, PhD is a professor at Penn State's Department of Education, Policy Studies, and director of the Center for Educational Disparities Research. His work investigates why some children are more likely to struggle academically or behaviorally while attending preschools or schools in the U.S., and how these children can be helped by practitioners, researchers, and policymakers. A particular focus of this work has been estimating racial and ethnic disparities in disability identification and treatment. A study reporting on these disparities was AERA, AERA's um, most read educational research study of 2015. He has advised the White House's Office of Management and Budget uh, and the President's Domestic Policy Council. Dr. Morgan has published 50 studies in peer-reviewed journals with, the work appearing, with this work appearing in pediatrics, journals of child psychology and psychiatry, child development, educational researcher, exceptional children, journal of abnormal child psychology, journal of learning disabilities, and other highly selective journals. Dr. Morgan's work has been reported in the New York Times, U.S. News and World Report, Politico, CBS News, Fox News, USA Today, The Atlantic, and other national news organizations. Dr. Morgan is an inaugural awardee of the Spencer's Foundation's Mid-Career Grant Fellowship. He received the Distinguished Council of Exceptional Children's Division of Research, the Outstanding Senior Researcher awarded by Penn State's College of Education, and the Distinguished Researcher Award from the American Educational Research Association's Special Education Research Group. He currently serves on the editorial boards of the Review of Educational Research, Educational Researcher, Exceptional Children, Journal of Educational Psychology, School Psychology Review, Journal of Learning Disabilities, as well as additional journals. Wow, you've been busy. Yeah. <laughs> His research has been supported by the U.S. Department of Education's Institute of Education Sciences, the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, and the National Science Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. Thank you, Dr. Morgan, for joining us sure. tonight. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, um, so you've prepared a little uh, PowerPoint presentation for us? Yes, I do. So let me let me um, just link over. I just want to say it's a pleasure to be talking with you all tonight about this topic, and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank so, um, so I have a presentation um, that I will go through, but feel free as we talk uh, to ask me questions and clarification, and I want to help um, uh, you and the viewers be as clear about this as possible. So. I'm happy to, to address um, questions that come up as I go through. Some of those might be clarified um, as I provide more detail. So, all right, so let me just link over to screen share. So, we are very excited about this topic also. Okay, good to hear. <laughs> so can you guys see that? Yes. Yeah, okay, great. So um, uh, what I'll be talking about is our work reporting on uh, Racial and Ethnic Disparities and Disability Identification in U.S. Schools. Um, uh, I'll, I have sort of four takeaway points, which um, as I go through them, one is that the prior research on this topic is really um, quite weak methodologically. And that is not just our own assessment. Um, I mean, there are strong studies uh, here and there, but it, uh, overall, much of the reporting in regards to whether minority children are over or underrepresented in special education has relied on data that has been explicitly identified, including by National Research Council uh, expert panel in 2002, as being quite weak. And so 
um, what we've tried to do is address these known uh, methodological limitations in the available uh, research base, particularly by doing something that um, has been recommended by others but has yet to be done because of data limitations. And what we've tried to do is make children otherwise similar um, in terms, particularly in regards to the factors that might relate to um, the likelihood of being identified as having a disability. So this is sometimes called in the methodological literature, literature kind of ceteris paribus contrasts or contrasts amongst otherwise similar children. And when we've done that, what we've oftentimes found, and um, this is point three, is that children who are uh, amongst otherwise similar children who display the same um, uh, risk for having disabilities, we consistently find that children who are white are more likely to be receiving special education services as a result of having been identified as, dis uh, as having disabilities than minority children. So um, well, once you compare children who are otherwise similar, particularly uh, on, based on uh, factors and characteristics that relate directly to disability identification, you find that white children are more likely to be receiving these services than otherwise similar uh, minority children. Um, and these racial and ethnic disparities in disability identification appear to be widespread and that they're um, occurring throughout the United States. Mm. So I'll give you just a brief background about the special education system is currently operating in the United States. Um, the, uh, the, the, the current um, legislative and policy context I'll detail briefly the limitations of the prior work, and then I'll go into a bit more detail about um, what we've been doing and what we've been finding. And then I'll close with implications for educational practice, including for school psychologists, as well as you know, welcome opportunities for dialogue. Um, a couple of limitations to note at the start is that we're, the kind of data that we're relying on is population level nationally representative data. Um, so we have a pretty good forest view of what's occurring throughout the United States in regards to disability identification and attending resulting special education receipt. Um, but we don't have much of a tree view. So there's there we're pretty good about the um, the weather question, but we're not so good in terms of the data that we have as in regards to the why question. Although I'll give you some potential mechanisms that might explain our findings as we proceed. Um, I can, we can't make ca clear causal inferences from these data. This is observational data, descriptive, and what we're doing is providing kind of a descriptive account of who seems to be more or less likely to be identified as having disabilities, um, uh, but we're not analyzing experimental data, so we can't unambiguously arrive at causality. Uh, we're unable to know the children's true disability status. That's not being independently assessed. And to, there's more research that needs to be done on this topic to better understand um, why what we're observing is occurring. Um, also, what happens to children once they begin to receive special education deserves more, more examination. So um, with those limitations noted, um, you know, generally as a description, um, special education services are provided to about 15% of the um, special education, uh, to the U.S. school age population. That varies depending on the state. So, for example, Michigan, about 14%. Texas, which you may have seen being described in the news, is much lower um, at 8.5%. So there's variability. But in, overall, you're talking about 6, 7 million children who are school-age who are receiving these services. Um, these services are expensive to provide. They're, in my mind, in many ways, a scarce resource. Um, the federal government only picks up the tab for about 14% of the cost, with the remainder being picked up by state and local governments. Um, and the, the services are expensive to provide. You're talking about um, and the cost to provide special education services being about twice as twice as much as providing services in a general education setting. Um, uh, it's important to know how special ed tends to work. Sometimes there's consumption that uh, once children are identified as having disabilities and receive special ed, that they're, they're segregated from their general education peers. That for most children, that really does not happen. Most children who have disabilities who are attending schools in the U.S. spend 80% or more of their day in the general education uh, environment. Typically, they're being um, they're being uh, provided with some supplemental um, instruction or um, some sort of additional resource uh, room time. But the the percentage of children who are receiving 
special education services in a way that really mostly segregates them from general education peers is actually quite a small minority of, of those receiving special education. And that general trend um, in terms of mostly receiving special education and general education environments is actually increasing. And uh, with attending declines in the percentage of children who are receiving special education outside of the general education setting. So just the, the takeaway point being there, for most children, um, especially those with more higher incidence disabilities, those children tend to receive most of their instruction in general education classrooms. Um, in terms of this topic around minority disproportionate representation in special education, this is uh, began in, um, with some reporting well before then, but in terms of uh, the relevant legislation of policy, starting in 1997, the federal law that governs special education, um, IDEA, was amended to provide more focus on the uh, potential for minority children being inappropriately identified as disabled and so overrepresented in special education. With another amendment done to uh, IDA in 2004, providing more compliance monitoring around this issue. And most recently with a set of regulations adopted by the Department of Education that really aims to um, um, uh, further require uh, monitoring of the issue. Um, states are required to use a standard formula for monitoring whether minority children are overrepresented in special education, with states also expected to set um, what the department will help establish as reasonable thresholds for disproportionality with a particular focus on overrepresentation, which is assumed to be occurring based on racial bias in the way that children are identified as having disabilities. And so here's just a representation of the typical reporting that's done by an office in the Department of Education, the OSEP, the Office of Special Education Programs, when they report to Congress in regards to how special education is working across the U.S., they'll report on what are sometimes taken as to be evidence of racial bias in the way the system is operating. And so you'll have reporting, as I've highlighted here, indicating um, some possibility, uh, just based uh, uh, simply descriptively, that um, certain populations of children may be uh, more likely to receive special education than um, other groups here uh, as measured sort of collectively. So, so for example, you'll see, I don't know if you can see my, the way I'm highlighting here, but um, um, American Indian or Alaska Native American uh, children are about 1.6 times more likely to be receiving special education than here, the, the way the department analyzes, than all of the groups combined. Or children who are Black are 1.4 times more likely to be receiving special education than all other groups. Um, a simple way to think about this is if you look at the relative shares uh, between special education and general education, you'll see that, for example, about 14% of children who are black are receiving are in the general education school age population, but represent about 19% of the special education population. And these this kind of research has sometimes been taken as evidence of potential racial bias in the way that children are being identified as disabled with attending um, an increasing um, regulation around this as a possibility to monitor for the problem, as well as also um, um, uh, mandates in regards to what um, local school districts should do if, if overrepresentation is being observed. Um, reallocation of funding away from children who are identified formally as having disabilities, for example. Um, localities uh, are required to start examining their identification procedures and, and publicly share the data with um, relevant stakeholders. Um, uh, so, but the, to center sort of on the, on the logic here, what, what, how federal legislation and policy are in this issue is essentially operating is that there's been an observation of a difference, which is often labeled as a significant disproportionality, a disparity that's large enough to be worrisome. And then there's been a conclusion or inferences to cause that that disparity is the result of uh, misidentification based on race and ethnicity. And so the federal legislation and policy on this topic has um, been, ha uh, been, been increasing the compliance monitoring of localities because of a concern of, in regards to racial bias. Um, and that is, in, that is increasing, as I've mentioned, with new regulations around this topic. But 
but really that is the motivating concern of the relevant federal legislation and and, and policy on this uh, in this issue in that there's a concern that children are being misidentified as disabled because they are black or Hispanic um, and that they are being placed into special education inappropriately. And so the evidence to date um, has led to some pretty strong conclusions about special education, including that special education um, eligibility is a discriminatory process and there's systematic bias in it, that special education is being used as a, as a form of segregation and institutionalized racism but much of those conclusions have been based on research that it doesn't really meet the standard to allow for those kind of inferences, particularly because it's mostly either been anecdotal or simple descriptive statistics that don't take into account any kind of potential alternative explanation, or when accounting for potential alternative explanatory factors has done so in a way that has likely led to spurious findings. Um, and so, the takeaway is that much of the available research so far has not really allowed for these contrasts, these ceteris paribus contrasts amongst otherwise similar children. And that's what we're trying to do. And so in terms of other explanatory factors, it's well known that the, the risk for disability is not equitably disseminated across the U.S. population. Um, you know, certain, because of histories of oppression and segregation, um, uh, as well as sort of ongoing practices, we know that um, exposure to the risk factors for disability are, are not equitably disseminated, that certain populations with the United States are much more likely to be to exposed to the risk factors that are known themselves to relate to disability. Um, and one, you know, very relevant risk factor is poverty exposure. So we know from um, census data that uh, that uh, children who are black, for example, are much more likely to be exposed to poverty than children that are white, that are, who are white. Uh, with their most recent uh, data indicating that about a 40% of black children are exposed to poverty versus about 10% of white children. Um, Hispanic children are also more likely to be exposed to poverty. And we also know from a good deal of social science research that exposure to poverty is, is, is functions as a, can, can function as a type of neurotoxin that, that increases children's exposure to, to things that are can impair cognitive, uh, physical, and behavioral development of children, including um, low birth weight, lead exposure, a variety of environmental toxins, fetal alcohol uh, syndrome, and many other factors that themselves are related to disability risk. And oh, Paul, can I interrupt? Yeah, please. And this might be a silly question, but... There are no silly questions. <laughs> when you look at schools that are um, in... Poor areas. Right. Is there still a disparity if if most of the students are poor and there is some racial diversity? Is there still uh, over or under representation in those schools? Uh, yes, it's an excellent question, and I'll sh as I proceed, I can show you data that sh um, indicates exactly the question okay. that you're raising. Um, because it seems like schools are uh, different that way, you know. Right. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So, um, yeah, so you're, what you're raising uh, is a question about context. And it's true that disability identification, um, and we've reported on this, and, um, is it seems to be influenced by two things, one of which is the child's own functioning, and the other is the comparisons that uh, oftentimes teachers are making um, to other uh, age mates in the school when considering whether to make a referral for special education. Now, in our research, and I'll detail this more as we proceed, um, we find even when we're looking at children attending the same schools who are otherwise similar in terms of their academic achievement and their own family's um, poverty, expo uh, um, limited economic resources, and other potential confounds, we still find that children who are white are more likely to be receiving special education services through because of an identified disability than otherwise similar racial and ethnic minority children. Wow. So, yeah. Uh, so let me get into that a little bit more, but it's a, it's a good question. So let me um, get back to, let's see here. There. Okay, so, um, so I just was highlighting the role that poverty might play, and there's reason to suspect that um, uh, differential exposure to poverty may explain um, 
initially observed overrepresentation of minority children in special education, and sort of more proximal to the decision regarding special education identification, we also know, and this is uh, likely because of differential exposure to poverty, that uh, minority children are more likely to uh, academically struggle in U.S. schools. And so if you look at the, the NAEP data, uh, which is a nationally representative data set that has been um, used since the late 60s to monitor for achievement gaps in the United States, um, uh, minority children are consistently more likely to uh, display academic difficulties than white children. And why that's relevant is because academic struggles are, are the driving reason, the key variable, um, why children are initially uh, referred and evaluated for special education. So the argument here is that it's not because of racial bias in the way the system's operating. It's really because minority children are more likely to struggle academically and children are selected for special education based on academic difficulties. And so we should not be, we shouldn't be taking evidence of overrepresentation, minority overrepresentation in special education as indicative of racial bias without accounting for differences in academic achievement. Okay. If we can find differences based on race and ethnicity after accounting for achievement differences, that does give us stronger evidence of potential racial bias in the way the special education system is um, uh, being uh, implemented or provided. Now, uh, I just I won't go into a lot of detail here, but there's many uh, mechanisms that have been put forth, um, as well as research findings that would support not overrepresentation, not um, misidentification um, based on race and ethnicity that leads to overrepresentation. But instead, there seems to be a good deal of research that is suggestive, both theoretically and as well as um, empirical findings, that minority children may be less likely to receive special educations due to identified um, disabilities. And some of this uh, um, has been reported on in public health. Um, some of them are more closer to educational settings, where, whereas um, uh, due process materials are often written in a way that are inaccessible, particularly for poor families. And I would just suggesting that minority families are more likely to be uh, uh, experience poverty than, than white families. Um, schools have been reported to be actively trying to attempt to avoid over-identification that would result in further compliance monitoring by the federal government, which would then put up sort of a headwind for minority children with disabilities to be properly identified. Um, my, uh, health providers have been reported to be dismissive of minority families' concerns or reluctance at times to provide services. And as Rebecca was just highlighting, um, there's also the idea that there might be frog ponds operating here, whereas we know that minority uh, children, unfortunately and tragically, are more likely to attend schools that are um, under-resourced. And so um, more um, children attending those schools uh, are more likely to struggle academically. So accounting for school-level context is also important and might suggest under-identification as a result. Uh, in terms of the relevant research here, I just wanna highlight briefly, there's been a great deal of reporting in public health in regards to dis, uh, racial disparities in disability identification, as well as health more generally. And so there's been several um, large reviews written on the uh, topic that really go into quite a bit of detail and suggest the idea that minority families might be less likely to receive appropriate um, uh, health care, therefore uh, be less likely to have their children identified as having disabilities. Um, there's been a number of bar uh, barriers or headwinds that have been um, hypothesized in the literature or identified. These are things like the way the federal law is written to discourage minority um, children's participation in special education, um, a lack of access to informed health care providers or dismissive providers, um, reliance on uh, parent or teacher referrals for special education, which might lead to white children being more likely to be identified, as well as some um, parental barriers in regards to concerns about stigma and concerns that what is what, what, uh, what some family, particularly white families, might consider a, a neurobiological explanation for struggles might be considered a result of prejudice by um, minority families. Um, so differences in the way that disability is approached and understood 
as well as a general lack of information that might disproportionately affect minority families who oftentimes have fewer resources. There's been some reporting um, in the news about um, uh, disparities in, in um, special education that might be leading to minority families being less likely to be appropriately identified, uh, and their children to be less likely to be identified as having disabilities. And that's occurring um, uh, across, you know, it's been occurring in Texas. It just recently was reported in um, Chicago. It was also recently um, used to justify uh, uh, legal action in, in Flint, Michigan, in which uh, families were arguing that their children weren't getting the services they were um, eligible for uh, uh, in terms of their children uh, and the resulting exposure to lead. Um, and so all that to say, there's been a, a sort of a set of explanations that have occurred here. And the first one of I highlighted the top model is that um, overrepresentation is because of racial bias in the way that this special education works. There's an alternative model, which I, you know, and others have labeled the achievement differences model, which is that minority overrepresentation would no longer be evident if we properly accounted for um, other explanatory factors, particularly poverty exposure and resulting um, academic achievement differences. And then once we did so, once we accounted for those factors, there's been a sort of a suggestion that um, that would explain away race, racial disparities in special education. But there's also sort of a more recent model, which is sort of a systematic bias model that results not in over-identification, but instead in under-identification, which is that there are multiple barriers that minority families are, are especially likely to encounter, which would suppress their child's likelihood of being appropriately identified as having a disability, which would lead to, um, even if we account for differences in poverty exposure and lower academic achievement, which would result in racial disparities that would suggest minority children are being unidentified as having disabilities. So there's sort of competing set of models here. What we've tried to do is um, address known methodological limitations in the relevant research base. Um, I can go into more detail about those, but in essence, much of the research on this topic has relied on either anecdotal evidence or simple descriptive statistics that have not accounted for potential alternative explanatory factors, or has had some aspects to it in terms of the analyses that are that are, might lead us to be cautious around their results. Um, the way that, I haven't talked about this yet, but the way that um, racial discrimin discrimination is understood is when you look at children who are otherwise the same, but being treated differently based on their race or ethnicity. Just like um, how gender discrimination would work. I, I would have stronger evidence of gender discrimination if I looked at um, applicants who were otherwise the same in terms of their qualifications and experiences and found that uh, women were being paid less than men. That is much stronger evidence than if I look at, well, here's the average wage for men and here's the average wage for women without accounting for differences in occupation. Okay, so if we want strong evidence of racial bias, racial discrimination, what we need to have is set up these contrasts or comparing children who are otherwise the same. And that approach has been used in public health as well as economics to understand um, and provide evidence of racial discrimination. Um, and it's also been used to study uh, disparities in access to gifted education by looking at children who are otherwise similar in terms of their academic achievement. When we do that to look at special education and account for um, uh, other factors that might explain disparities in um, initially observed overrepresentation in special education, uh, we consistently find evidence that minority children are less likely to receive these services. So our logic here is amongst otherwise similar children holding constant other explanatory factors accounting for confounds are minority children more or less likely to be receiving special ed? What we find is um, under-identification is uh, repeatedly evident. We find it prior to and following school entry. We, follow, we find it for special education generally, as well as across many specific disability conditions. We find it occurring um, during the elementary uh, time period, middle school, as well as high school. We find it whether we use teacher or parent report. 
And at this point, we've analyzed nine different nationally representative data sets and keep on finding um, the same um, the same finding that um, amongst otherwise similar children, children who are racial and ethnic minorities are less likely to be identified as having disabilities and receiving special education services than um, than white children. Sometimes we find evidence of over-representation prior to accounting for potential confounds, but not after. And we've reported this in a series of highly selective, high-impact journals across a range of different disciplines. So these findings have been extensively peer-reviewed and appeared in journals that are hard to get into and have very high standards in terms of their, of their methods. Um, top journals in, in pediatrics, psychiatry, uh, uh, psychology, sociology, and education. Um, here's a uh, kind of a sample um, uh, finding uh, in a study examining uh, uh, racial and ethnic disparities in, in ADHD. Um, if you look at this figure, what you see is we're estimating the likelihood of being identified across these time periods as having ADHD based on parent report. And what you, if you just take um, the last point here, which is showing an overall trend, and subtract it from um, one or 100, what you get is the percentage of children who have been identified by this time period as having ADHD. So you see that about 90, um, about 7% of white children have been identified as having ADHD by the end of eighth grade. And this is amongst children who are otherwise the same in terms of their academic achievement, um, their behavioral symptomatology relating to ADHD, their family SES, uh, their gender, their health insurance access, uh, whether the child was born with low birth weight, many other factors that could serve as potential confounds. So it's reasonable to consider these children otherwise similar, except based on their race ethnicity, at least based on observed and measured characteristics. What you see here as a trend is that white children by the end of eighth grade are uh, all groups follow the same trend in which um, more children are being identified as having ADHD across time. But you see gaps between children who are racial and ethnic minorities and children who are white in their estimated likelihood of being identified as having ADHD. And when we look at amongst children who have a, 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 an ADHD diagnosis, what we find is um, uh, amongst otherwise similar children, children who are Hispanic, African-American, or of other race and ethnicity are less likely to be using medication, um, which is an evidence-based treatment to manage the disorder. Uh, we find racial and ethnic disparities in access to early intervention and early childhood special education services. Here, without any statistical adjustment whatsoever, we find that Black, Hispanic, um, and uh, Asian and Native American children and children of other races are less likely to be receiving early intervention or early childhood special education services than children who are white um, relative to their general share of the population. Can, can I ask yeah. and stop you one more time? Yeah. This is making me think of, especially in the case of identifying ADHD, if we are talking about um, risk factors like poverty and, and uh, exposure to lead and, right. and um, things that I might categorize as chronic stress, then how do we, if black children are more likely to experience those or, or other ethnic minorities are more likely to experience chronic stress, then how do we know that we're not right, that they don't have ADHD, that they just have um, the effects of chronic stress like anxiety or an inability to concentrate because of trauma? Well, um, right. It's hard, it's hard to distangle these things. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to know, uh, you know, remember how schools are working. Schools, typically, the way the special education process is working is, is a teacher starts to notice a child is not keeping up with his or her peers, whether it's academically, which I think is most often the case, or behaviorally. Um, then the teacher starts to get concerned and makes a referral, and that leads to... Um, if, if the process is working, you know, as it should, then there's some sort of child study team that's trying to rule out other um, um, factors that might explain 
um, the child's, say, academic struggles, whether it's a lack of access to appropriately provided um, instruction or other factors like the ones you mentioned. Um, uh, uh, and then after ruling out other explanatory factors, then the child is typically identified as having a disability. So it's hard, it's hard for schools to distangle all the factors that might be leading to say uh, chronically low or, uh, or underachievement. Um, what they, uh, because they don't have fMRI machines in their schools, right? They're, they're using, di uh, if the child's lucky, they're using the best available diagnostic tools. Um, but even then, you're typically talking about an inference in regards to having a disability because we can't really observe right. the neurology of the child to understand whether, well, is this really ADHD or is this because of chronic exposure to chaotic home environments? Those turn out to be really hard to distangle. Yeah. Um, what we want to do, though, is we want to have an equitable process in that um, when we're making decisions about whether their child has a disability or not, we're not bringing in the child's race yeah. to decide that question. We're making a decision based on uh, the observable indicators that are supposed to relate to disability. That's not race. Right. That's chronically low uh, academic underachievement. Um, so would you or, guess that if we had a, a good system, uh, a good school that addressed these issues in a universal way, like a trauma-informed school, or I'm thinking of uh, the pediatrician Nadine Burke-Harris and her approach to um, taking care of whole children and families, not just, okay. you know, uh, giving them antibiotics, you know, the, that whole, the approach to chronic stress. Um, right. From, sort of from adverse okay. childhood experiences and things of this nature. Yeah, so if we did that, if we had that, if there was a school that that, that way, do you right. think that then all of the all of the children would be equally likely to... I, I, I don't know if we can really ever approach that process because of the way that we fund schools is so locally determined. There's tremendous inequities in regards to resources and information. Um, but I can tell you that... The, these racial and ethnic disparities in disability and other health conditions have been observed frequently in public health. And the public health researchers are doing things that I think probably do help. Um, um, they, uh, you know, so the one suggestion is to use universal screening, right? Another suggestion, as I'll get into, is, is to better inform communities that typically lack information about um, risk factors and symptomatology and available treatments for different health conditions, whether it's it's heart disease or asthma or some other condition. Um, we don't really do that in schools at all. Um, we don't disseminate information in, in localities or in regards to special education. Um, I think instead we, uh, I think families mostly encounter a good amount of difficulty to obtain information and obtain evaluations for special education, in part because schools are, in my view, incentivized not to provide the services because they are so costly. You know, so if, if I take my child in to see the pediatrician, that pediatrician doesn't really have a financial dis incentive or disincentive to to evaluate and then diagnose my child as having ADHD or autism or some other condition. Um, schools have to pay, you know, a pediatrician, it doesn't come out of the pediatrician's pocket somehow if the child is identified as having autism. Um, the pediatrician may not know all the information in regards to autism, um, but there's not a sort of a financial disincentive. The schools, all, all the administrators know that school, that special education is, is very expensive to provide. Um, there's not a lot of information that's provided consistently and uniformly about the services. Um, you're tending to rely on social networks in order to, to access the services oftentimes. That's a long answer to your question, I'm sorry. Um, I think there's a lot of inequity in the way that we deliver and make available special education. Um, I think there are ways to improve the system. One of the ways I think as I get into is universal screening. That's been suggested to address 
um, similar disparities in public health, as well as in gifted education. Um, school to community partnerships would be another avenue. Um, making information more widely available to all stakeholders in schools about special education would be another um, possible way to improve the system. And then we've got kind of this, this pushback that we've created through monitoring these types of things. Right. Um, with, you know, I, I've certainly seen administrators um, who, you know, I'm doing an evaluation um, and they're, I've seen administrators hesitant because, well, he's African-American. Right. We're I, above I, our quota. We're away disproportionately. Yeah, we, We're going to get in trouble. When, we, when our op-ed and study came out, we heard from practitioners who are saying exactly what you're saying is, is, is my, I've been told we cannot identify this child because we have, we're identifying too many children from minorities as having disabilities. Now that just breaks my heart because that's, that's just taking away any sort of individual need out of the equation. And in fact, to me is, you know, in essence, a type of racial discrimination. Um, and so so I think that problem is occurring. And I, I don't, in my view, I think the way that we've talked about this issue oftentimes in educational research, as well as in the policy domain has is, is not been helpful in, in providing sort of a nuanced understanding of the issue. You know, it's kind of like the analogy is if we, you know, here, because minority children are two or three times as likely to have asthma, you don't hear people going around and saying pediatricians are racist. And because minority children are two or three times as likely to have uh, cavities, we don't go around and saying dentists are racist. And we don't say healthcare or Head Start providers are racist because minorities are two or three times as likely to get receive Head Start or receive Title I. But somehow that same logic we use to decide that the way that we identify children as having disabilities is, is racially discriminatory. Um, so anyway, we, I could talk more about this. I, I know we have limited time. So let me, let me maybe go a bit more into the weeds in terms of our findings. And then, um, and so I can, you know, not keep you all night. Uh, so hold on, uh, let me just pull back to my scripture. So, so we had a study come out that um, was actually not the first study we've done on this topic. In fact, our first study reporting using nationally representative data and individual level um, control for confounding factors came out in 2010 and reported um, that minority children were comparatively under-identified amongst otherwise similar children as having disabilities. We reported that in 2010. We, found, we reported another study in 2012. We reported another study in 2014. In 2013, and then we reported this study in, in 2015. But this study received quite a bit of attention um, and was considered quite controversial. And what we did here is we looked at the overtime dynamic uh, for racial and ethnic disparity in the disability condition across five different disability conditions across um, kindergarten entry to the end of middle school using nationally representative data and control for individual level confounding factors. Um, this study was considered quite controversial um, and provocative, um, but also suggesting that we may not be understanding the problem um, correctly. What we found is that if you look at children who are otherwise the same, um, and in the note here you'll see that there are a number of different factors that we controlled for um, when estimating the likelihood of being identified for any one of these five dis disability conditions across time. Um, so we're controlling for academic achievement um, on task, uh, organizational related behaviors, acting out type of behaviors, um, family level income, maternal age, health insurance access, grade level, state of residence, um, uh, the, the uh, parents' marital status, um, other factors. Uh, what you see is when the numbers are less than one for this particular, the grouping, it means that the, that uh, group of children is less likely to be identified for the disorder. Um, and numbers greater than one would mean more likely. So here, we see that the odds ratio for black children to be identified as having a learning disability is 0.42. So way to understand that is if you subtract that number from one, you'll get the percentage difference in the odds between white children and black children to be identified as having 
um, this the particular disability. So in essence, black children here are about 60% less likely in terms of the relative odds to be identified as having a learning disability than children who are otherwise the same in terms of observed characteristics who are white. And we see as we move across all the different, the different disability conditions that we measured that uh, black children here are consistently less likely to be identified for these specific disorders, which constitute about 80% of what children are identified for as having a disability and receiving special ed in the US. So these are the most common disability conditions. We also see that Hispanic children and um, uh, are more intermittently, but also um, uh, across several conditions, uh, less likely to be identified as having disabilities. And so are children who are of other race and ethnicity, as well as children who are from non-English speaking households. We also see consistent evidence that the greater your academic achievement, the less likely you are to be identified as having a disability. So academic achievement and also kind of um, learning related behaviors pretty much drive your likelihood of being identified as having a disability in the US. Um, if we model this across time, as we saw before, you see that, for example, um, by the end of eighth grade, about um, 3% of children who are black have been identified as having learning disabilities relative to about 5.5% um, about of children who are white. So these groups of children based on the race ethnicity are following the same general dynamic and that you're more likely to be identified as having a learning disability across time. But there's always a gap in terms of relative likelihood to, here based on your race and ethnicity. And we find that also for emotional disturbances as well as the other conditions that we looked at. If we just take a simple way of understanding this issue, if we look at kids who arrive at school displaying a sort of a worrisome lack of uh, academic achievement and so would you would think would be more likely to be identified as having disabilities. If we look at this across several different indicators of achievement, we find that white children are consistently more likely to be receiving special education services later than black or Hispanic children. So for example, of those children who arrived in kindergarten in the bottom 10% of the achievement distribution in math, so 90% of their peers are doing better in math. Um, you find amongst those lowest 10%, um, children, about 40% of children who are white are receiving special education in third grade relative to about 20, 25% of children who are black or Hispanic. And we find similar disparities um, across the other measured achievement uh, indicators. I have a question. Yes, I'm gonna please. try and articulate this. Okay. So I mean, what you're saying is that, um, you know, given all, it, it, that it seems like given all the, the, the disparities and the injustices and you know the lead exposure and the poverty and the trauma and all these things that pi uh, minorities are subjected to um, more so than um, the majority. Right. Um, and not, that, not, not to say, Rachel, that all minority families mm -hmm. experience that. That's not the case. It's just that probabilistically, more more minority children are living in poverty as a percentage than children who are white. Um, it's not to say, you know, most, most children who are black, for example, do not live in poverty, 60% based on the most current census data. Okay. Um, I just want to be clear. It's not, I, I, you know, it's important to note that we're not saying all minority children are experiencing this risk. What we're saying is minority children are more likely to experience these risk. Yes. Um, so given all that, that yeah. there, there should be more um, special ed placements um, statistically, correct? Am I? Am I uh, I'm saying um, it's, you, you can descriptively say, it's accurate descriptively to say that um, a, a relative to say uh, their share of the school age population, more minority children are receiving, particularly certain racial and ethnic groups, um, black and Hispanic children are more likely to be receiving special education than we would um, assume to be the case if all the things were equal. Okay. Right? If, all, if, if exposure to disability risk was equally distributed across the school age population, then we should observe that, you know, black children represent, say, 14% of the school age population. They should represent 14% 
of the special education programs, okay? But we know that's not the case. And there's hundreds of studies in social science that, that document this. I mean, the NAEP data has been showing this na nationally since the late 60s. Um, so uh, what we, if we're concerned about the potential for racial bias, which is a legitimate concern, we can't use just this simple descriptive statistics that don't account for any other kind of alternative explanation, including differential exposure to risk factor. So if we really want to know whether there's racial bias in the way special education is working in the United States, the proper way to do that, to test for that, is to look at children who look otherwise similar in terms of their relative risk for receiving those services. And then when we see disparities that are attributable to race, then we have stronger evidence of racial bias. So, so all that to say, when people say, when, you, when someone says 14% of the school age population is black, but 19% of the special education population is black, descriptively, that's quite accurate to say. The problem is, why is that happening? And there's been a great deal of federal legislation and policy that's assumed that the reason that's happening is because of racial discrimination. And some educational researchers, based on uh, limited or uh, flawed data, have reached that conclusion as well. And so what we've tried to do is, a, is, a, is, is using better, you know, it's not our, our data, it, it's the better data is available and once you use the better available data, it controls for, uh, at the individual level, differences in academic achievement, at the family level, and exposure to poverty, and other potential confounds. Once you do that, you have better evidence for the potential of racial bias. When we do those kinds of analyses, we find consistently that all of the things being the same, minority children are less likely to be receiving special education than white, than white students. Uh, Dr. Morgan, we're, we're yeah. running low on time. I'm oh wondering if you could okay. forward to so, the, the end of your presentation. Yeah, yeah uh, sure, sure. Um, so let me get here. So I'll just say in just a few minutes, you know, these, these analyses have been critiqued. We've been replicating our work here. And we've been, I'll go with this quickly. When we look at um, the newest available NAEP data, we find again that once you can, you'll see some initial evidence of over-identification without controls for any alternative explanatory factor. Once you control for achievement, you uh, simply controlling for achievement, uh, right away the directional estimates switch and minority children are less likely to receive special education services. And to go back to Rebecca's question, once we account for other potential confounds, including socio-demographics, as well as something called school fixed effects. So here we're looking at children attending the same schools. We find further evidence, robust evidence of identification based on race necessity. Um, and we find this across a range of different disability conditions. Uh, we find this across, uh, whether, uh, across the achievement distribution. So if we look at children as children, um, amongst children who are the lowest 10 percentile of the achievement distribution, 74% of children who are white um, in fourth grade are receiving special education versus much lower percentages of children who are racial and ethnic minorities with these disparities evidence across the achievement distribution. Um, we also find these disparities uh, looking at children who are uh, uh, white, white and black males. Sometimes black males have been hypothesized to be especially likely to be misidentified as uh, uh, having disabilities. We find that's not the case when you look at otherwise similar achieving children, white children are more, white males are more likely to be identified as having disabilities. If we look at this across time, for just adjusting for academic achievement differences, all the racial and ethnic groups across time are less likely to be re receiving special ed than otherwise similar white children. And we see that for reading as well as uh, correcting for math. Um, it, when we look at the best available studies, we can find consistent evidence of under-identification. We have a recently published best evidence of this, of this in exceptional children where we detail this more fully. 
Um, also to answer Rebecca's question, if we look at children across the um, uh, percentage of children attending the school who are free and reduced lunch amongst children who are low achieving, all these children being in the bottom 20th percentile of the math distribution, that um, your likelihood of being notified as having a disability is higher if you're attending a more advantaged school. Um, your likelihood of being identified as having a disability decreases when you attend a more economically disadvantaged school. But across the distribution of school level resources, white children are more likely to be receiving special education than otherwise similar achieving black children. Uh, uh, we've replicated these findings across multiple data sets, disability status respondents and time periods. We've adjusted for known confounds. We've published these findings in highly selective journals in a number of fields. We, the findings are consistent with a number of different theorized mechanisms. And they're also consistent with both qualitative and stakeholder um, interviews, as well as findings from public health. Uh, in terms of the, uh, Anna, the, pol the policy and practice implications, um, these disparities have um, been hypothesized to at least partially explain achievement gaps, whereas children who are minorities are, are not being appropriately identified in receiving care to which they're entitled, and that is exacerbating their achievement um, struggles. Um, there's been some reporting that schools are more likely to criminalize uh, behavior of, of minority children while medicalizing similar behaviors of white, uh, white children. Um, mm -hmm. And this potential for an underdiagnosis leading to um, a, this sort of contributing to the school prison uh, uh, pipeline has been advanced. So what should policy and practice be doing? First of all, under IDEA, localities have a legal mandate to identify all children with disabilities, but that's not really operationalized or specified. And our results are suggesting that schools aren't doing enough to make sure they're identifying all children with disabilities, particularly children who are minorities. Um, and so they should be monitoring for this problem. How would they do that? One suggestion is to decrease the reliance on parent and teacher referral and instead rely more on universal screenings, mm. as well as to adopt a mechanism used in public health where local um, uh, community members are informed about the risk factors, symptoms, and available treatments for a range of different disorders, and then they disseminate that in local communities. Um, uh, I think that may help address the problem. There's also other things I could get into about a lack of access about special education. Um, making due process materials more accessible would be another potential uh, solution. Um, so we've um, so I'll stop there. I know we're running out of time. Um, if there's any questions, I can go into those in more detail. Um, I know I've thrown a lot at you. What I've tried to convince you is um, these findings in regards to uh, racial disparities indicating under-identification are quite robust. They've been consistently replicated. And um, I think that you'll find more and more um, reporting on this very topic, finding the same thing. Um, so with that, uh, I'm happy to, to dialogue further with the time we have available. Okay. I know we have a you know, real quick. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to bring up, so if we Google around on this topic a little bit and yeah. And, and and some of your studies, um, there are some criticisms. Now, um, I pulled up um, the Atlantic has an article, and I just yeah. want to read a sentence or two. Okay. Um, it says the researchers began with skewed data in which Black and Latino kids were already underrepresented. He also wonders why, if the researchers wanted a data set much larger and more accurate, they didn't use numbers from the Department of Education, which collects data on millions of students, not twenty thousand, every year in every state. Right. So, just real quick, like, um, are you getting some pushback on some of these? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I mean, anytime you find something that run against run against runs against the conventional understanding, you're going to get some pushback. Now. Some of that can be certainly fair criticism, and I've shown you some results where we've replicated our findings that help address some of those criticisms. But some of those criticisms, I think, are a bit motivated by ideology instead of a concern for evidence, in my view. Um, so, for example, the, the idea that somehow we're using the wrong sample and we should be using the much larger population-level data is just uninformed. And the reason that's uninformed is because the, that, the larger data in which the 
individual is referring to doesn't include any in individual level achievement measures. It doesn't include any family level indication of exposure to poverty. It doesn't include the extensive kind of measurement about uh, potential confounds that are available in the data that we analyzed. And quick, another, another. I know we're, we're yeah. out of time, but then when we're talking about exposure to poverty and whatnot, um, under IDEA, you know, do we do we feel that 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 is warrants a disability classification? This trauma, this poverty, and we know that these kids need help. But well, so the feeling yeah, is, but it's, good, it's not a disability. Okay, that's a that's that's a question that deserves an hour in and of itself. Mm -hmm. um, there's for for learning disability. There there's an exclusion criteria in regards to economic disadvantage. Now, is that based on really the relevant social science? Not really. It's it's because from a resource allocation, we don't want all children to be receiving what are supposed to be highly tailored individualized services when so many of the country's children are in fact growing in poverty. Um, uh, you know, 20% uh, of the childhood population. Um, so the criterion in regards to economic disadvantages for learning disability and it's it's not it's not as if exposure to poverty somehow we we don't think exposure to poverty can be detrimental to children's neurological development. We know that it can. Um, it's more that exclusion criteria is really more from a resource allocation than justified based on neurological evidence. Um, uh, so. So um, how should we take into the, and, uh, the other thing I'd add is not all disability conditions have that, that sort of economic disadvantage exclusion criteria. Um, but, you know, uh, what we're doing in our analysis is we're accounting for poverty exposure, right? These children are otherwise the same in terms, uh, uh, we're holding constant exposure to poverty and we're finding evidence of racial-based disability identification. So, um, so uh, all that to say, um, if we if we want evidence of is there racial bias in the way the system is operating, our analyses are helping provide that. We're finding there is. It's just running contrary to what's typically been reported in education, but very consistent with uh, with what's been reported in public health. It's so much to digest, but we have one last viewer question. Right. I think it's a okay. really Question. Um, he asks, I wonder whether our tiered supports would present with the same findings in terms of the number of kids simply receiving academic supports. And, and then also, how do, we quantif how do we quantify economic disadvantage when it comes to SLD, exclusionary factors? Right. Well, you know, what, what typically happens is this in the child study deliberation, we're kind of looking for reasons to not identify the child as having a disability. Um, and if someone says, well, the child's living in poverty, someone's going to go, well, I, he doesn't have LD. Right. right? I mean, that's the way, that's essentially what's going to happen. Regardless of whether he, no one's doing it, an fMRI on the child to determine whether he's got a neurological deficit as a result of growing up in poverty. That's not what happens. Um, the way that, you know, Schools oftentimes lack, you guys know how what it's like, you oftentimes lack any real sense of information, any, any information about what's really occurring beyond the school, right? And if you have any information, it's almost completely anecdotal. Um, the ch you know, the child's parents are divorced. Or my family. The child, the, uh, the, the child, the child's low income or living in poverty or so, or I, I saw somewhere the child's born low birth weight. That's about as good as it gets. Um, now, in our data, we have much better measures of a variety of different potential confounds, including direct assessments of the, of the uh, based on survey responses of the family's income and their, the parental occupation education levels, the kind of information that's oftentimes not available to schools. Um, uh, yeah. And so, do you think that some of these kids are getting supports outside of special education, just through the RTI system? Well, I, I don't know. That's a good question. Now, you know, in the special education community, I think there's been some concern that RTI has been used to, to avoid or delay 
identifying children as having disabilities, even though when, you know, it's explicitly noted that that shouldn't be the case. Mm. Uh, uh, so we have to be a little concerned about how RTI is operating and, and whether it's being used to not appropriately identify children with disabilities. And if that's happening, which children are more likely to be disadvantaged in that way? My argument would be less resourced families would be especially disadvantaged by delay, by kind of uh, RTI related delays in assessment. Okay, wow, it's so important. I think this is so important to think about and understand more and uh, investigate further, which I'm, so I'm guessing that you'll be doing. Well, we are. Um, feel free to follow me on Twitter. Okay. Uh, we, if you, um, I think we, you guys were kind enough to upload a number of different um, write-ups that we have. Um, some of them are geared more to uh, practitioners or a general audience, and some of them are more detailed in regards to the, uh, the methods and um, ways that we analyze the data. Um, but uh, we're, we're continuing to investigate the topic, and um, I'm, uh, we'll we will be reporting further on it, um, as, I think, as well as I think you'll see other reporting um, in regards to this topic. Uh, so, uh, yes, yes, we'll be looking at it further, I guess, is the, the short answer to that question. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Dr. Morgan. Um, sure, guys. We, we want to do right by kids, and this was certainly um, thought-provoking. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. to be here with you. Thank you so thank much for your time. You yep. And if I look like I was laughing, my husband's texting me, yelling me at me because I'm missing The Walking Dead. So oh, my God. That's okay. why I wasn't laughing oh. at anything. <laughs> Getting these angry text messages. Okay. Bye, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thank you.